Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you're having a great day. And today is going to be a little bit of a different episode, because instead of doing my own talking, I'm actually going to be interviewing someone. And I know I don't normally have that format, but this was a really important, wonderful person. And so I made an exception because today I'm going to be interviewing Dawn Hebner. And if you don't know her name, you definitely know her books. She is the author of what to do when you worry too much and what to do when your brain gets stuck. And it is a, those, both those books are books that we talk about all the time on the podcast, in the private Facebook group, and pretty much wherever I talk about anxiety, I'm talking about Dawn as well. She has come out with a new book called Outsmarting Worry, which is already a number one bestseller on Amazon, and it far exceeds my expectations for Dawn, and the book is going to be a key part of my therapy from now on. I'm going to buy lots of those books and be giving them out to kids because it will walk all of your kids through how to fight back with their anxiety and their OCD, and then how to do some other tools that a lot of books don't talk about, like how to accept doubt, how to accept not knowing, and how to lean into it to the point where you're doing exposures or what we call challenges. So I'm very excited to talk to Dawn. She gives a lot of good information. I actually brought a lot of questions that you guys asked me to ask her, and I weave those through our interview so that most of you can get your questions answered. She has really insightful responses to those. And so I hope you enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here is Dawn Hebner and our interview. Well, I want to welcome Dawn Hebner to the show. Thank you so much, Dawn, for taking the time to come and talk to us about anxiety and OCD. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. I talked to my private Facebook group about you coming and they are constantly talking about your books anyway. So they were ecstatic that we were actually going to get to talk to you. And I have kind of a long list of questions, but we'll, I'll weave them throughout. Great. So you have a new book coming out. And for those of you who don't know who Dawn Hebner is, I don't know how you don't, but she is the author of What to Do When You Worry Too Much and What to Do When Your Brain Gets Stuck, plus a lot of other great books. But those are the two really big ones that everybody talks about. She's an author, and she has a new book coming out called Outsmarting Worry, which is amazing. I love this new book. I'm so excited about it. Um, This is really going to help my therapy practice (laughs) because this is a great book to give kids. So I want to get into that. What made you write a new book? So it had been close to 10 years since my first book, The What to Do When You Worry Too Much book, came out. And I felt like I was learning more over the course of time. And so I had new information that I wanted to teach children. And also what to do when you worry too much is really most appropriate for kids who are at the younger end of elementary school and um, dealing with generalized anxiety. And I felt like I wanted a book that would be appropriate for kids at the upper end of elementary school and even going into middle school and that was teaching even more specific skills about managing all kinds of anxiety, not just generalized anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I do, I like that about the book because I do feel like it does encompass so many 
great skills that are out there. And I think most of the anxiety books that I read for kids in that age range generally talk about one of those skills, you know, either mindfulness or CBT. Um, I haven't actually read any books that really incorporate exposure on the level that you do in a kid-friendly sort of way. And incorporating uh, ACT, acceptance, commitment, therapy, too. Can you talk a little bit about some of those techniques that you offer in the book? Sure. You know, one of the things that I think is really exciting about anxiety is that it's very treatable. And I think that children do best when they're taught something about anxiety so they understand what's going on, why they feel what they feel, why they're doing what they're doing, and that they understand something about kind of the mechanism about how you can effectively change your thoughts and your feelings and your actions so that you can feel better. So really all of my books are geared towards teaching children about their own thoughts and feelings and teaching them how to um, use different skills so that they can uh, kind of free themselves of anxiety and live more happily. And um, one of the main things that I'm teaching in this new book is something called exposure, as you mentioned, and that really has to do with facing the things that you're afraid of. So for all of us, when there's something that's making us feel nervous or unsure, we want to back away from that thing. We want nothing Mm -hmm. more than to just escape whatever it is that we're frightened by. And the more we avoid, the more our anxiety gets locked into place. And so children need to have a way to learn how to approach rather than avoid the things they're afraid of. And that sounds really obvious. You know, we all know that you have to not avoid the things you're afraid of, but it's remarkably difficult to do to actually step towards the thing you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. But that can be broken down. So kids can learn um, about desensitization, that we can get used to things and we can get used to them by doing them just a little bit at a time. We don't need to do them all at once. And the analogy that I most typically use has to do with jumping into a pool. When you jump into a pool, you get used to the water, uh, the cold water, and after a while, you don't notice the cold anymore. And virtually all children have had that experience in a pool. And then we talk about how when you're getting used to the cold water in a pool, you have two choices about how to initially get in. One is to jump in and deal with the cold all over all at once. And the other is to gradually lower yourself in, to walk in slowly and deal with it just a step at a time. And so when we're looking at something that we're afraid of, we have that same choice. We can do the plunge in method or we can do the step by step method. And the things that we're afraid of can be broken down into little, little, little pieces. And we can gradually acclimate to them by practicing with those little pieces. Yeah, and I think that's great because I think so many kids need that. And I think parents sometimes struggle with how to help their kids do that. And sometimes it's counterintuitive to help your child move towards their fears instead of away from them. So one of the things that I think is really important and one of the things that I try to um, help kids understand in this new book is that just because we're afraid of something doesn't mean that we're actually in danger. So when we feel afraid, we feel like we're in danger. 
But those are two different things. And there are times that we have what I call false alarms. So we get kind of an alert um, in our body and in our brain that makes us feel like something really bad is about to happen, something dangerous is about to happen. But we can get those alarms going off even when we're quite safe. And kids need to learn how to tell the difference between a real danger, a true danger, and a false alarm. And it's those false alarms that we want children to learn to manage in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, often so when parents are trying to get their kids to um, approach something that they're afraid of, there's kind of an argument sometimes between parents and children where parents are trying to say to their kids, there's nothing to worry about or it's going to be fine or there's no, there's no reason to feel afraid. Um, and that doesn't work particularly well. Uh, you know, kids tend to uh, feel like their parents don't understand or they feel not validated in some way. Um, it's, it's more effective to tell a child that you understand that they're feeling afraid and that that's a false alarm or that that's their worry that's trying to frighten them. And maybe we can talk for a minute just about the importance of externalizing worry. That's really useful to do with really children of all ages, including older teens and even adults, um, is to help the anxious person, the child, um, imagine their worry like a little being to kind of personify it. So it's a little critter or a beast or pest of some sort. And doing that kind of externalization puts kids in a better position to begin to question what their worry is telling them. So rather than just kind of living their worry, you know, kind of believing it the moment it occurs to them, kids can learn to question what their worry is saying and then can learn to challenge it and to push back against it in a variety of ways. And so when a parent helps their child to externalize their worry in that way, it allows a parent and child to be on the same team. So rather than it feeling like a parent against a child in some way, with a parent trying to make a child do something that they're afraid of, instead it can be parent and child against this personified worry. So parent and child are on the same team, trying not to let this worry be the boss of them. Yeah, and I love that. And we we do talk a lot about that on this podcast, you know, externalizing it and naming it. And, you know, such an effective approach. Uh, One thing that I think people kind of hit a a barrier with sometimes, maybe you can clarify what they can do. And you actually talk about it in your book, which I think is great, is moral OCD. We talked about that. We talk about that a lot in my podcast and in my Facebook groups. What should parents, how should parents respond when a child has some confessional behavior and they're, they're doing a compulsion by getting that reassurance? What would be a good parental response in that case? Yeah. So, um, It's easy to get swept up in the content of anxiety, whether it's OCD or some other form of anxiety. And parents and sometimes even therapists spend a fair amount of time trying to use logic and trying to reassure, and that's really going in the wrong direction. So um, one of the things that's important to do is to learn how to recognize when it is that worry is talking to you. And once you recognize that this is worry or this is OCD, 
you can immediately begin to respond in a different way. So there's no need to enter kind of a lengthy discussion or to have a debate about whether thoughts are true or whether they mean anything about a child. And instead, um, a parent can talk to their child about that's worry trying to trick you again, or ah, there's that worry trying to make you feel like a bad kid. And that's really quite different from a parent reassuring their child about you're not a bad child, or I know you wouldn't lie to me, or the kinds of things that kids worry about when they have that moral kind of OCD concern. Yeah, and I think that's, it's good to be able to differentiate. And that was one of the questions that popped up when we were talking about what people wanted to ask you is, some parents were saying they have a really hard time differentiating, like what is a typical comment or what is an anxiety and how can parents differentiate when a child's seeking reassurance that maybe is not helpful to give and maybe they should give a response like tell your worry, you know, to leave you alone or it is, it is just a regular comment or a regular concern. Yeah, so I have two thoughts um, about that. It's a really important issue. One is that uh, OCD tends to attach itself to topics of interest to a child, so things that are developmentally relevant. Um, so it, it's it's actually fairly easy to predict at what age a child with OCD might start having trouble with, let's say, thoughts that they're going to kill themselves someday, or thoughts that maybe they're sexually perverted in some way, or maybe they're pregnant and they don't realize it. Because OCD leaps onto things that are are developmentally normal for kids at a particular age. And that can make it really confusing for parents to know how to respond because the truth is that children need information about some of these things. They need information about um, how do you know if you like someone or what is and isn't okay in terms of sexual behavior or um, how do you know if you're a good person or a moral person, right? And so um, often it makes sense for parents initially to talk to their children and to give information about things that kids don't really don't have a way of knowing about on their own. I talk to parents about um, the importance of making a distinction between a regular question and an anxiety question or reassurance-based question. And one of the ways to make that distinction is that when a child is asking a regular question, not not fueled by anxiety, they're open to any answer. So they're looking for information and any information you give is acceptable. When a child is asking a question that's a reassurance question that's fueled by anxiety or that's based on OCD, there's a very particular answer they need to hear. And any other answer is not okay. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when a parent has that sense or sees, you know, through their experience with their child, that a child needs them to say something a certain way, you know, needs to tell them a very particular thing. You're not going to get sick or you're not a bad person or whatever mm-hmm. that is. A child just needs to hear that very particular thing. That's kind of a red flag. That's a signal that, okay, this is either OCD or some other kind of anxiety at work. Yeah, I think that's a good a good way to distinguish them. 
Okay, so um, you know, so one question is about how can parents best talk to their children when kids are asking for reassurance like this, and another is what do kids need to learn how to say to themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the strategies that it sounds like you've probably talked with your listeners about it, uh, it has to do with talking back, like you know, sort of talking mm-hmm. back. To this externalized worry, and kids can learn how to be kind of feisty and talk back to worry. I don't have to listen to you, or you're not the boss of me, or that sort of thing. One of the things that's really tempting for children to do is to talk back to worry by reassuring themselves. So kids sometimes um, will mistakenly think that an effective talk back to worry is something like "I'm not going to get sick," or "I didn't cheat on that test." You know, it's essentially trying to reassure themselves. And that's actually not the most effective way to talk back to anxiety or OCD. More effective is just identifying that it's worry or it's OCD trying to scare you or trying to boss you around and that you're not going to fall for it, right? So let's say a child is um, really frightened that they might get sick, which, you know, as you know, is a hugely common fear for Mm -hmm. kids. And so their anxiety tries to make them think that they're at risk of getting sick or throwing up at any moment. And kids want to hear that they're not going to get sick, so they seek that reassurance. And sometimes when they try to talk back to anxiety, they'll do that by saying, I'm not going to get sick. And what would be more effective is a child saying, I feel this way a lot and I'm usually fine, or that's just my worry bothering me, I don't have to listen to that rather than trying to do an absolute reassurance to themselves because the reality is nobody knows the future we don't nobody knows anything for sure and when we try to do those absolute guarantees that leaves too much room for worry to come back with that nagging kind of question of are you sure and kids just then are back in the spiral back in the anxiety spiral yeah, I like the way that your book highlights that. I think, and I think that'll be helpful for parents to read as well and to see how to talk to their kids and how to have their kids talk to them. That whole acceptance right. of, I don't know if I'm going to get sick. And, right. or, you know, yes, I'm feeling panicky right now. Um, I, I really like that component that I don't think is instinctive for us to just embrace it. Right. So really much of anxiety and OCD as well has to do with the inability to tolerate uncertainty or the inability to tolerate doubt and just this desperate need to be sure that things are going to go a certain way or things are going to be okay. And part of what we need to teach kids is to learn how to tolerate uncertainty. And that's something that we all have to do, you know, to to tolerate doubt or to tolerate uncertainty. So rather than trying to give guarantees, we need to help kids learn to be more comfortable with the uncertainty, right? And kids can know that something is unlikely, but unlikely is different from absolutely positively definitely not going to happen that that we can't say right so a lot of times parents don't know what to do when anxiety or OCD turns into ugly behavior and that is probably the number one question I always get is what do I do one how do I differentiate again you know what is poor behavior because of anxiety or OCD and then what do I do when they're kind of stuck in this um, imploding situation where they are, they're having a really difficult time and it's behaviorally not great. 
Right, right. So, um, you know, we all know about the fight or flight response, right? So that's the mm-hmm. um, physiological response that gets triggered when we think that we might be in danger. And we're all much more comfortable with the flight part of that. So mm-hmm. anxious children who are crying, who are seeking reassurance, who are clinging, who are avoiding, that, that can be frustrating and hard to deal with it, but it's more familiar to all of us. The fight part of fight or flight is just as valid, and that's often what parents see when their children are not behaving well. So kids are feeling really afraid about something or really anxious about something, and they become fierce. You know, they sort of come out almost with their claws raised. Um, They're trying to defend themselves against something that they perceive as a real danger. And if a parent is trying to talk a child into doing something that they're afraid of, kids misinterpret that as their parent is somehow against them or their parent is trying to expose them to something dangerous and they come out fighting. And so Mm -hmm. the misbehavior is a part of that fight or flight response often. And it's tricky for parents because we don't really want parents to deal with it as as a disciplinary event, like to get punitive with their children when they're in that kind of mode. But we also don't really want parents to just immediately capitulate because accommodating anxiety is not particularly useful. That kind of keeps the anxiety strong. So what um, is helpful for parents to learn how to do is to be identifying worry, identifying the anxiety, and remaining empathic but firm. So parents can learn to acknowledge their child's upset or feelings or fear and still have certain expectations about behavior or about what's going to be happening. And um, It can be really tricky for parents to stay calm in those situations, but it's hugely important for parents to remain calm because the more a parent escalates, the more that leads to a child escalating. Um, And then both parent and child get, you know, kind of out of control in a way that, that doesn't serve anybody. Yeah. And I think that's good for people to hear. I think it's hard to do, but I think it it's a good thing to do because you don't want to add to that to that storm. Uh, one of the things that I uh, often recommend is that parents learn how to step to the side of the content until their children are calmer. So um, to say things to their children like, "We'll be able to figure that out when you're using your regular voice," or mm-hmm. "I'll be able to answer that question." when I see that that you're calm again. I, I actually like the phrase regular voice. Um, mm-hmm. Rather, you know, calm down is irritating. Somebody says to <laughs> calm down, and, uh, mm-hmm. nobody likes that. Um, but using your regular voice gives a, a clear behavioral clue or cue to a child. And um, it, it also is a good sign that a child is able to think clearly again. And so when a child is frantic or yelling or getting physically aggressive, I think that parents need to shift their attention 
to helping a child calm down um, before they deal with whatever the content is. Kids are often really pushing their parents to tell them they don't need to do something, they don't know, need to go somewhere or whatever. And, and parents um, need to try to their best of their ability to kind of step to the side of that rather than answering those questions until kids are calmer. Mm-hmm. I talk to kids myself about um, how there are different parts within our brain. So um, I give kids a really simple explanation of the amygdala, which is kind of the fear and danger um, center of the brain. And then the what's called the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the thinking, rational thinking and logic um, part of our brain. And when our amygdala sounds an alarm, our prefrontal cortex essentially shuts down. So when we're um, having heightened feelings, fear, frustration, anger, we can't think clearly. And so it's important to quiet down the emotional part of our brain so we can get back to more logical thinking. And I think it's important for parents and kids both to have some understanding of that so that they're not trying to problem solve or they're not trying to um, you know, deal with the content about something when a child is in their emotional brain and they're not able to access their logical brain. Yeah, that makes a lot of good sense. And I think it's a good explanation because I think sometimes parents who don't understand anxiety or a partner who doesn't understand anxiety will get upset because they'll think that you're coddling them or enabling them and not realizing that at that point you just need to take a step back, wait for that child to come back and then move forward so that helps. Yeah. And, you know, I talk to kids about um, essentially there's a, I don't know, a contest of some sort between child and their externalized worry. And when they are listening to worry or allowing worry to be the boss of them, they're empowering it. Mm -hmm. And anything that they can do to not let worry be fully in charge of a decision or fully in charge of a situation is a win for a child instead of a win for their worry. And so we're looking for just tiny, tiny steps of kids being able to um, handle something differently, move towards something in a new way. Tiny steps are okay. That's still a win for a child rather than that being a win for worry. So how can a parent empower their child? What if a parent has a child who is very defeated, doesn't have um, a lot of fight in them? What's something a parent can do to try to motivate them to, to make those small steps? Yeah, so um, I find that for the most part, the children that I work with who are older than about five years old have some understanding that worry doesn't feel good and worry makes it harder for them to do things, harder for them than it is for other kids. And they most typically do have some amount of feistiness to them when they're not in the situation. You know, so if they're just talking about worry, but they're not feeling it, they're able to kind of muster some determination to fight back against it. It's much more difficult when a child is actually in the moment. Um, it's, it's more difficult for them to kind of have their resolve in place to be pushing back against worry. And that's why it's really important to teach kids some really specific skills and to have things that um, kids are going to be practicing regularly so that um, it's not just when they're in this anxious moment that a parent is trying to kind of guide them through it in a different way. And when a child is having trouble with anxiety, there are really two kinds of 
situations that are important. One is when the anxiety comes to a child. So a child finds themselves in an anxious moment um, and they need to know how to deal with that. But another is a child learning how to kind of purposely trigger anxiety or purposely do things to kind of bring their worry on so that they can practice managing it in a different way. And unless parents and children are doing the second of those kind of Mm -hmm. intentional practice, things aren't likely to change a whole lot because there's not going to be enough opportunity to be managing differently and for kids to get the experience of seeing what that feels like and what ultimately happens when you're handling things in a different way, right? So just to make this more concrete, let's say um, there's a child who feels really nervous about navigating their house alone. So they're worried Mm -hmm. about going upstairs alone because there might be a bad guy or a monster or something might get them, right? If you're only dealing with that, the time or two a day when you're asking your child to go upstairs and they're saying they're too scared and then you have an argument about whether or not they're going to go up on their own and they end up going up but with their dog or with you or whatever you're not going to make any headway what needs to happen instead is there needs to be very specific practice that happens every single day if not a couple times a day where a child is doing going upstairs practice Um, And it can start out with maybe parent at the bottom of the stairs and child is just going up and coming right back down and going up and coming right back down over and over and over again. And then you you make it a little bit harder, go up and all the way into your room and come down many times, go up and into your room and draw a picture or read a chapter of a book, come back down. So you're kind of intentionally practicing, Mm -hmm. not waiting for times that a child is in an anxious moment. You're intentionally practicing the thing that's difficult, um, trying to trigger the anxiety so that children can practice moving past it or doing something different anyway. Yeah, and I love that you have that in your book because I think that, you know, doing that kind of exposure, what I call challenges, is so important. And I we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And I wonder, um, people really have a hard time with, so that they get those basic fears like going upstairs or... Um, very concrete fears, but I think parents struggle on how to do challenges or exposures around more vague things, like um, some parents were asking me about just right OCD. And actually, you have a really good example in your book, so I wonder if you maybe you can talk about that. Like, what would it look like to do an exposure for that? Yeah, so kids that have uh, just right OCD need to learn how to make mistakes on purpose. Um, So I do things with kids like, um, depending on the age of the child, but having it be that um, on homework, you know, if we're starting with a tiny step, it might be that they're going to make one letter in one word go a little bit below a line Mm -hmm. or be a little too big or something like that on purpose. Um, And then, you know, we sort of gradually move towards intentionally asking a question, answering a question wrong or making some other mistake on purpose and not fixing it, not redoing it. Kids can learn how to, uh, often kids that have just right OCD qualify many of their answers. So um, they're concerned about inadvertently saying something that's untrue. So they'll say something like, um, I think such and such, or I'm not sure about such and such. And so 
um, practicing answering rapid fire questions without the I think or I'm not sure or other qualifier um, mm -hmm. so the kids can um, learn to say things even though they're not 100% sure that they're right. Um, I'm having trouble remembering the example in the book that you're talking about. Was um, you used the hair example. Ah, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so that one was uh, a child who feels like their hair needs to be just right, and they spend long, long amounts of time um, fixing it, refixing it. Um, and a child might challenge themselves or go through a sequence of reducing the amount of time they're spending, or um, eliminating certain angles that they're looking at themselves in the mirror. Um, and essentially having the mantra of once and done um, or, or moving towards that mantra. So it's learning how to, um, so with exposure, there are, there are two things that you're exposing yourself to. One is the actual action or the thing that's triggering um, your discomfort. You're exposing yourself to that thing. And then the other thing that you're exposing yourself to is your feeling. So. Um, children with OCD get this just hugely uncomfortable feeling, this overwhelming feeling that they have to do something or redo something, do something a particular way. And part of what they need to learn is that they can be filled with that feeling where they're compelled to do something, but not do that thing. And eventually that feeling fades. Eventually that feeling goes away. Part of what fuels OCD is kids feel like they have to do whatever it is. They have to touch something a certain number of times. They have to redo their hair. They have to straighten their socks so that they're just right. They have to jump when they come to a threshold in a room, you know, whatever it is. Um, they feel like they have to do that thing. So they do it. And doing the thing um, brings them tremendous relief. And so they get the mistaken idea that the only way to get relief is to be obeying OCD. But really it's the case that kids can um, learn to not obey OCD and relief will still come, that that urgency will fade over time. And so we're trying to you know, teach kids how to begin to do that so that they have the experience of seeing that that sense of urgency that they feel goes away on its own. And I think when kids read your book, you know, because it really walks them through the physiological component of why they're feeling that way and then how to fight back, you know, but not debate. And then I like the way you break it down into steps of how to kind of conquer their thoughts and the irrationality of it. And then you move into the exposure and the acceptance of it. And so I think that that'll be a good basis for a child to understand why they need to maybe do exposures. But I wonder what role the parent should have in that. Does the child decide when they should do it or should a parent be a little bit more structured in that yeah you know it depends some on the age of a child but for the most part i see this kind of like homework and children need their parents to structure they need kind of the scaffolding that parents can provide so this isn't really just a fully optional thing it's something mm -hmm. that a family needs to commit themselves to and the more parents are committed to facilitating exposure and, and other kinds of practice, the more efficiently kids learn the skill set and internalize it and begin to, to do it more naturally. So um, uh, my expectation when I'm working with parents and children are that 
parents are going to require practice and facilitate that practice, it's perfectly okay to sweeten the deal for kids, you know, to have some Mm -hmm. kind of reward system in place um, to help motivate them. And rewards are also a way of acknowledging that this is really hard work for kids. Um, And so we're rewarding them for doing the hard work of practicing these kinds of things. Right. But I think that it really is important for parents to have a clear understanding of the skills, to learn how to be talking to their children so that parents are essentially coaching their kids to use the skills, and then for parents to facilitate practice and and require practice. Yeah, and I think that makes sense to me because I don't think a child really would have that structure without a parent encouraging it and setting it up. Um, That brings me to another question. A lot of parents were wondering... So if they're doing these exposures, or even separate from the exposures, just the the daily grind of having a child with anxiety or OCD, how do you help the other kids in the home, one, understand the anxiety and OCD, and secondly, that you're doing these things that seem counterintuitive, you're having your child do things that are scary. And for other little kids in the home, they sometimes don't understand that. And how would you explain that to them? Right. So I think kids as as young as about three can be taught just in a really basic way that there's a worry, you know, some some families call it worry bug, um, some call it worry monster, although monster is not my favorite term for this, (laughs) or some other name entirely. And, you know, clearly this is an imaginary thing. This is a pretend thing. Um, But they can be taught that this is is a pest or this is a bully and we're going to fight back against it. We're going to push back against it. And then siblings, whether they're younger or older, I think can be recruited to help. Um, And I've seen some really lovely sibling interactions where um, often an older but sometimes a younger sibling will help their anxious brother or sister fight back or push back or talk back to worry kids can sometimes get creative and silly about what they're going to do with worry, you know, shove it off a cliff or lock it in the freezer or you know, whatever. And, and that kind of um, humor and creativity is actually really helpful because when kids are laughing or um, using the creative parts of their brains, that in and of itself helps to quiet down the anxiety. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So I'm going to start wrapping it up, but I do want to say um, your TED Talk was wonderful, and I will link it in the show notes because people should watch your TED Talk. And I liked to hear that you had an anxious child or have adult anxious child, and you've experienced your own anxiety. And, you know, I have as well, you know, have three anxious kids and my own anxiety and everybody listening to this, a lot of parents even have their own anxiety. What was your biggest takeaway from raising an anxious child? And what would you say to other people who are in the trenches right now? Yeah, so, you know, it was really humbling. Um, I was a psychologist already, but I was not trained with cognitive behavioral therapy, didn't really know about that. And so I did all the wrong things, all the things that parents do meaning well, um, but they really serve to increase anxiety rather than to decrease it. I was very accommodating to my son and really bent over backwards to help him avoid the things he was afraid of. And it wasn't until 
things got to kind of a certain critical point, and I don't want to do any spoilers if people want to watch the <laughs> TED Talk, um, that I started to learn about cognitive behavioral therapy and learn um, how to approach rather than avoid. Um, and all of that made me a much more effective therapist not only because I was using more effective uh, methods for treating anxiety, but also because I had a, a much clearer understanding about how hard this is for parents to um, not just accommodate to the anxiety. You know, we want to be nurturing our children and kind of scooping them in and helping them to feel safe and to feel okay. Um, and it can be really hard to respond in a different way, to, you know, kind of remain calm and clear in the face of our child's anxiety. And um, anxious children often trigger the anxiety in their parents. So mm -hmm. it's really very important for parents to also learn some strategies that they can use themselves to manage their own anxiety so that they can be modeling and also helping their children. Yeah, There's a completely book. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, Anxious I think it's called Anxious Parents, Anxious Kids. Mm -hmm. by um, And she talks a lot about, you know, these kind of co-occurring and triggering one another between parents and kids. Um, and and I, I think that book is wonderful in terms of teaching parents things that they can do and say to help their children. Yeah, I totally agree. That would be a good one. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been great hearing from you. Um, your book, Outsmarting Worry, is available, I'm assuming, yes. wherever books are sold. Right. Yes. Yeah, Thank it's you. already a number one bestseller on Amazon, I saw, so it's doing really well. Thank you. Yes. Yes, it is. It's, you know, it's um, it's exciting for me. I really hear from families from all around the world um, who have benefited from the things that they're learning from my books. And I actually like to talk to children about that because often anxious children feel aberrant in some way. You know, they feel like there's something really wrong mm -hmm. with them. And I think it's kind of, it's fun for them to learn. It's reassuring for them to learn that there are kids really all over the world who are dealing with this and who are learning the same things they are learning uh, and learning to overcome. Yeah, yeah, I think normalizing it is a wonderful thing. And your books definitely do that. Is there another place where people can read about you, your website? Yeah, so two places. Um, my website, so if uh, somebody puts my name into a search engine, it's the first thing that'll come up, but the website is dawnhebnerphd.com. And then I also have a professional Facebook page um, where I post sometimes kind of pointers for parents, skills for parents, um, and that is Dawn Hebner PhD, self-help for parents and kids. That is awesome. Thank you so much for coming in here and talking to us. That was great. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you found that interview helpful. And I hope for those of you that submitted questions, you felt like you got answers to those questions. I would definitely recommend checking out Don Hebner's book, Outsmarting Worry. I will leave a link below and to her other amazing books for younger kids. Outsmarting Worry is for kids between the ages of 9 to 13, although I think even older kids beyond 13 could definitely benefit because it goes into more detail about different skills that I think kids with anxiety and OCD really should have in a really kid-friendly sort of way. So if you are enjoying this podcast, you don't have to end here. You can go and check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash C 
backslash anxious toddlers 78, where I talk about anxiety and OCD for all ages. If you want to get further support, you can go to my website, which is www.anxioustoddlers2teens.com, recently changed the name, and please join me in my private Facebook group with tons of other parents, and you can go there at facebook.com backslash groups backslash AT parenting anxious kids, or just go to my website at anxioustoddlers2teens.com, and there's a pink button at the very bottom, and you can join. I hope you're having a wonderful week and I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do and I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For more tips and parenting support, visit anxioustoddlers.com.